Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 16. That's on page 1069. If you're using a pew Bible, so we are coming up on the end of the, uh, the Last Supper discourse here in John. And then next Sunday, we'll be looking at the, the, the prayer of Jesus in chapter 17, which kind of summarizes this whole section. This morning, we're looking at John 16, starting at verse 16. says, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. So do we understand what he's saying? Do you, do you know what he's talking about here? Here's Jesus saying to his disciples, in a little while you won't see me, and then a little while after that you will see me. I mean, what's he talking about? Well, it, it's helpful to remember when he said this. He was uh, at the Last Supper. And literally, when, within a few hours, he was going to be going to the cross, and he would die and be buried, and then they literally wouldn't see him because he'd be dead and gone and buried and and in the Father's presence. And then, in a little while, like just a couple days, they would see him because he'd be raised from the dead. So so this is a a kind of cryptic reference to the fact that he's about to be crucified and buried, and then he's going to rise again. They won't see him, then they will see him. Well, I guess that's it then. Sort of mystery solved, case closed, trivia answered. We could probably just all go prepare for the Super Bowl now. Uh, well, not so fast. I never preach that short. So, because even though we know what he's saying, even though we have the advantage of kind of 2020 hindsight, we know how the story goes, we, we can anticipate the conclusion of the narrative, uh, I, I want to press it a little further and say, do, do we really know what it means for our lives that Jesus is raised? Yes, he's talking about his death and resurrection. But, but have we moved beyond the place of saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus died, Jesus buried, Jesus rose. We affirm that. That's one of our doctrines. But what does the resurrection of Christ mean for our lives today? And I wonder if in that sense, I'm really not that different from these kind of mystified disciples. Do, do I really live in light of a risen Savior? And, and if so, what would that look like you know, tomorrow morning when you're in homeroom? And, and there you are trying to get geared up for another day of school. You know, if, if you believe, if you're a kid and you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that he's your risen Savior, how will that make your week different than the kid next to you who doesn't know that or yet or doesn't believe that? Um, if, it, you know, if you have your grinding commute tomorrow, you have to face getting in the car, getting on the boat, getting on, catching the train, hoping to find a good seat. And there you go, another week of work, or maybe it's in front of the computer, or going to monster.com looking for work, or whatever it is you're going to face tomorrow morning, what difference does it make that Jesus is raised? Is it just something we, we sing about in you know, some songs in church, or does it really affect our lives? I was in uh, Dunk, uh, Dunkin' Donuts this weekend grabbing a coffee, and um, it was one of the smaller ones. So I, I walked in, and there was just a guy there ordering and then there was some lady behind the counter doing, doing her thing. And I heard this like sniffling, like, you know, 
kind of stuff. And I was like, what? What is that? You know, and I was trying to put it all together. And I realized the lady back there making the coffee was just falling apart crying. And, you know, the guy at the counter was, you know, it was awkward. He was kind of like, you know, doing one of these, I don't hear it. I don't see it. You know, and, and he got his coffee and he was out of there. And so then I, you know, I step up and she's like, can I help you? And I was like, are, are you okay? <laughs> you know, and she's like, yeah. You know, and I was like, wow, sorry to hear that. You know, large ass coffee, two cream, two Splenda, caramel swirl. Um, so, you know, like, what, what's going on? And so we're having, you know, these two conversations at once. And, um, and then she, she just kind of started emoting about, you know, I hate my job. And I couldn't quite make total sense of what she was saying. But it was something about she had been sick. And, and she felt like they used the time when she was sick, when she was never sick, to cut her hours. And now she'd come back and, and she didn't have the hours to pay the bills. And she, you know, it's like, oh, man. You know, and so then, you know, she's handing you your coffee, and then you're like, oh, okay, what do I do? And, of course, now the line is backing up, and you know how it is in Dunkin' Donuts. You do not slow down the process, and like, or I'd be crying because they'd be like, ah. So, you know, so I, you know, I kind of wanted to pray for her, but I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I was like, look, hang in there. It's going to be okay. It was so, such a stupid thing to say. And then I left. And, you know, that's like real life, okay? So here was one of these, you know, moments where our mechanized utilitarian interactions was intruded upon by real life, the stuff we all go through, the, the, the stuff we all kind of keep bottled up as we go through the challenges of life. And, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, what difference, and I'm trying to connect those experiences with Jesus is raised. What difference does it make? If, if she did know Christ, how would that make a, a change in that circumstance? How about when I'm in that circumstance? How, how will the resurrection matter to me? What does it mean that he's going to be raised? Because it's interesting when you look at the next verses, verses 19 through 28, which we're going to read in a minute, Jesus kind of answers their, their question that they're mumbling about. And, and he's, he's going to explain to them. You know, they're like, what's he talking about? But what I find really interesting is in verses 19 to 28, he, never, he answers the question, but he never answers it. It's kind of typical Jesus. He kind of always leaves you guessing a little bit. And he, he doesn't just come right out and explain it to them. He doesn't say like, oh, 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 you guys didn't know what I was talking about? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So listen, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, literally. And then I'm literally going to rise from the dead. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, sorry, I, just, I guess it wasn't clear or something. I, sorry about that. It's not like that. He doesn't just tell them what's going to happen factually. They're going to find that out on their own. He didn't have to tell them. Three days from now, it's all going to make sense once he's raised. Instead, what he does in verses 19 to 28 is he addresses this issue that we're talking about. What does it mean that he's raised? How will that truth and that historical event change our lives? How does it impact us? And so it's just so fitting here in John as he's kind of wrapping up John 13 to, to 17 here, and, which is all meant to kind of encourage the disciples and get them ready for his departure, that he should sort of land on this note of the resurrection. And, and it's so fitting for us too because as people who live on this side of the resurrection, it, it's a great thought about as we go through this life with all of its troubles what does it mean that we serve a risen Savior? So let's look at verses 19 to 28 and see the two, two implications. I, I see two major kind of significances coming out of the resurrection for us. Two ways in which the fact that Jesus is no longer dead, that Jesus has come back in a little while, 
and he's alive today. This is how it should affect our lives. Here's the first one. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus should give us an irrevocable joy. Irrevocable joy. We should have a joy within us that nothing can take away in this world. Nothing in this world can strip it from us. A lot of things can be taken from us, but this joy cannot. Look at verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, uh, Are you asking one another what I, what I meant when I said, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You'll grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. No one can take away that joy. It's irrevocable. So, so he's talking about the, his death and resurrection here, right? But again, he's using veiled language. He's like, a little while, you're not going to see me. You're going to be super sad. You're going to be upset. You're going to be crying. The world is going to be partying that I'm not here. So that the authorities are going to be like, good riddance. That was great. We finally got rid of him. And your, your world is going to be rocked. You're going to think everything's falling apart. Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah, and now he's dead. You know, everything's going to fall apart. And then it's just going to flip once the resurrection happens. And, and it's going to even be better than before. You're going to be even more amazed when you see me alive again. Your grief will just turn to joy. And then he uses this great image. He's, he's like, it's like a woman giving birth. You know, there's the labor, the pain, the misery, and then the birth comes, and then there's the joy. You know, and I can attest to this. You know, my wife and I have four kids, and I'm, I'm telling you, labor is like the hardest thing I've ever gone through. Um, it, I, I wouldn't want to do that again. It was exhausting. I still just, I get, I get tense thinking about that. Um, seriously, though, you know, it's horrible. It's like, you know, there's the screaming and the crying and the moaning and the death threats and the, <laughs> the temporary restraining order. I mean, it was ugly. It was really a bad scene. And then, you know, then the pushing and all the screaming. And then all of a sudden, the baby pops out. And then, like, within a minute, it's, <laughs> you know, I was like, how do you go from CIA gulag torture facility to happiest moment ever? You know, it, it's, it's such a dramatic transition that happens. You know, what a perfect image for, for the, the emotional roller coaster those disciples must have been on to going from we've just believed this guy was the Messiah and he's dead. Have we completely been snookered to he's alive again? What? You know, this, this must have been an incredible experience for them. And now it's a joy that no one can take away. Now, I, I, I can't pass this up. I, I just have to, like, take you a little bit deeper into this. Not only is this birthing imagery fitting and, like, a super good illustration, it fits really well, but it's even more than that. The birthing language is actually Old Testament language. You know, one, surprise, surprise, Jesus trying to explain who he is and what's going down. He, he's always drawing upon the Old Testament 
and, and using that to explain himself and what is going on. And, and the birthing imagery is part of the Old Testament language about the coming of the Messiah. And, and so he's, it's just a nut, yet like, you know, the umpteenth way he's saying, I'm the Messiah. Even this birth thing that's going to make you doubt all, this, my crucifixion is going to make you doubt all that, it's actually part of the prophecy that, that, that pointed to me. And so the, the birthing language has come. In fact, in the time of Christ, the, the Jews, some of the Jewish groups even had a phrase uh, about the coming of the Messiah. They called it the birth pangs of the Messiah. It was just a kind of a common way that they thought about the, the travails and the trials leading up to the coming of the Lord. Uh, so let me, for instance, uh, take bookmark this in John. Put a bookmark there. I want you to go back. I was going to show you one messianic birth narrative. It's in um, Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26, page 699 in the Pew Bible. The, the parallels between our text and this text are so interesting. Isaiah chapter 26, page 699. If you look at Isaiah 26, 16. So here's Isaiah, seven centuries before Christ, prophesying about the coming of, of the Messiah and, and just the future of God's people. So it says in Isaiah 26, 16, Lord, they came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. He's talking about the people of God, Israel. And then he uses this analogy, verse 17. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so we were, were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. It didn't happen. We have, brought, we have not brought what? Salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to people of the world. So Israel's job in the Old Testament was, they, they were the, the kind of womb through which God's purposes to save people would be born. God created Israel, and it was the womb into which he put his law and his glory. And out of that, you know, Israel ultimately had a, a, a missionary purpose. It wasn't just to be one nation, but it was through them to bless all the nations. That was a promise that God gave to Abraham. And so God gives the promise to Abraham. Israel is the womb in which this is all kind of nurtured and gestated. And out of this is supposed to come salvation to the world. But instead, you know, we know the history of Israel. The history of Israel is like, it's like our history. You know, so much potential, so much promise, so much disappointment. We di- haven't lived the way God wanted us to live. And so rather than, than giving birth to salvation, rather than giving birth to the people of the world in the sense of bringing God's salvation to the nations, Israel failed in their mission and, and they, they suffered, but it was a suffering of judgment and, and God brought them to their knees. But now there's something else happening here. In our text, you have, keep it on Isaiah 26, but, but think back to our text now. Now you have the 12 apostles, okay? So the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, that number's not accidental, you have the new Israel here gathered as Jesus has gathered this people and they are going to go through the travails and the Messiah is now going to be birthed in a sense. The, the salvation that, that was hoped for is going to come. In fact, check out verse 19 of Isaiah 26. This is just ridiculous. Check this out. But your dead will live. What? Resurrection language. Their bodies will rise. It's still going to happen, even though Israel failed. 
You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Joy, rejoicing. There's the happiness theme. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So you have this incredible coalescing of the birth language and the resurrection language. These images are being like interwoven and just kind of mushed together, mixed up with joy in hope that this salvation would finally come. In fact, I mean, I don't want to get too carried away here, but look at verse 20. The little while language is there. Go, my people, enter your room, shut the door behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until my wrath has passed, until his wrath has passed by. And so you have this picture of the Messiah, Jesus. The disciples are going to be in travail and suffering as he goes to the cross. He's going to be in travail and suffering on the cross. In that little while, the wrath of God is passing over. The wrath of God is coming upon Christ. And they're going to be sad. And then all of a sudden, joy as Christ is birthed, as he comes out of the tomb, as he rises again. And all of the salvation that was hoped for and promised in the Bible is now there in Christ. So when Jesus says this birthing imagery, he's not only picking a really apt, helpful illustration, but he's, he's saying this that has been promised is about to go down, guys. It's about to happen. Salvation is going to come. And man, it's, it's so much joy. And, and you know, when we as, as sinful human beings come to believe in Jesus, we're, we're kind of incorporated up into that birth and resurrection experience. When you come and put your faith in Jesus, you're, you're, you know, he, he gathers you up into this so that we're in him. You know, we're born again. We're raised from the dead spiritually when we put our faith in Christ. We, you know, the, the New Testament always talks about Christianity as being in Christ. You know, do, you, do you want to know what it means to be a Christian? It means to be in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You know, all those verses about this new life where I'm now in Christ. I'm born in Christ. I'm raised with Christ. I'm seated with Christ. And and someday he's going to come again and I'll really be raised. And and so there's this whole new identity. You know, like uh, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's it's in Christ, this new life that we have. And, And it's so joyful, you know? And that's one of the cool things about being Christian is there's this deep down joy rooted in Jesus because at the end of the day, Jesus is my life. And you can't take him away from me. And so I have joy that can't get pickpocketed from me and identity thefted away from me or, you know, stolen from me. You can't mug me and take Jesus. It's He's my life. He's my joy. And so I have joy no matter what happens to me. It's incredible. You know, it says, Jesus says, in, going back to John 16, no one can take away your joy. If your joy is in Christ, no one can take it away from you. The world can take away pretty much everything else. We can have our Super Bowl shot taken away from us. We can have all kinds of things taken. You know, your job can be taken away. Your savings can be taken away. Your dignity, your, your reputation can be sullied and taken away. Things you work for, things you build, houses, businesses, churches, they can be taken away. 
And if your joy is in those things, your joy will be taken away. We, we, can lose our, uh, we can lose our things in our bodies. We can lose body parts. We can lose our sight. You can lose your hearing. You can lose your hair. You can lose your mind. Um, but if my life is in Christ, I can never lose that. My joy is, is secure in him. If, you know, children can be taken away. Spouses can be taken away. Best friends can be lost. And that's, I'm not diminishing the pain of that at all. But what I'm saying is as a Christian and as we go through the normal pain of that, there is a deep down joy that I, it brings you back to Jesus is my life. And even those hard knocks in life, rather than making us be bitter toward God, they, they just push us closer and say, wow, just makes me realize that Jesus is what I have. And that joy, it just gets deeper and richer even as we go through those, those trials. You know, there's two types of people in life. There's bitter, angry, grumpy, resentful people who feel like they got robbed and their dreams didn't come true and they're mad, right? Then there's other type of people in life. They're happy, positive people who are just one trial away from becoming angry, negative, bitter people because what they trust in just hasn't been taken yet. And they go, I'm happy, life is good, yeah, but what if this was taken? What if that was taken? And Jesus is saying that because of him, there can become a third type of people, which is people who have realized that this, nothing this world has can give us ultimate joy, can all be taken. These are all temporary joys. The, tr- the true joy is in the resurrected Christ, in knowing him, that he is our life. And when he's your life, even when you go through the shocks of the other losses, and as painful as those are, There's a deep down joy that nothing can take away. Even in death itself, even in death itself, you know, we have a hope our our bodies will rise. Like, you know, what's the ultimate robbery? Is death. Death takes everything away. Whatever you had, no matter how successful you were, no matter what a great athlete you were, death takes it all. You're, You're stripped clean. It's like the final mugging we all have to go through. Where everything we love gets taken from us, our, our loved ones, our life, our health, you know, the ability to just breathe and enjoy life. But for us as Christians, you know, in the end, that's not even something that kills our joy because we have Christ and he was raised and we have hope that if he was literally raised, then there is resurrection and this is the promise. And so there's a joy even in the face of death. You know, we had a, a funeral here yesterday. Uh, that's one of the biggest funerals I've been to in a long time. Wow, it was powerful too. And uh, it was, there was more people at that funeral than there are here right now. And uh, it was for a guy in our church named Michael Gary, who was a member of our church, who just poured himself out and touched so many lives. And he was so beloved. And so the church gathered and, and his friends gathered to just remember his life. And you know what was so cool about that funeral wasn't just how well attended it was or anything like that, but it was the hope that was in that, that memorial service. It was person after person standing up and just speaking with hope because of Christ, what Christ had done for him. And even his, his precious wife, Joanne, got up and spoke. And, you know, you never know when the spouse gets up to speak, like, how's this going to go? And, man, that was the best part. She was just so beautiful and strong and just glorifying God and being honest about the pain, but just putting it out there that her faith was in the Lord. And it's like, man, you just don't go to funerals like that. It's incredible. What a difference having Jesus makes right to the end. It's like, this is it. 
man, Christians just die so well. You know? They just die. They're awesome at dying. Right? Because they have hope. Because it's real and it's not just like, well, I'm sure he's in a better place and, you know, I live on in your heart. I mean, I don't want that. I want like death defeated, Jesus raised, I'm in him. Like that's hope. That's not just kind of, you know, well-intended sentimentality that's impotent and weak. It's a resurrected Lord. So we have hope. So we need to have a joy that, that no one can take. So, you know, do you have Christ? Do you have that joy within you? Have you been united to him? Have you turned away from your sin and clung to him as your savior? Have you come to know this, this Jesus who can give a joy that the world cannot take, that even when death, the final mugging happens, it will not stay, take it from you. There's joy in Christ. And if you're a Christian, if you really do have Jesus, where's your joyometer at, you know? I, I, I feel like, like joy is one of those uh, kind of dashboard things in my life. It's like, you know, a little light, beep, 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 in your car. And I know when my joy is, is waning, you know, and that light comes on, boop, 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 Jeremy, getting pretty grumpy, boop, boop. That's a lot of criticism you've been leveling. And when I become, like, critical and negative and grumbly and complainy and fault-finding, and, and I just find that, 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 that stuff coming out of me. I realize, man, something's wrong. My, my joy is, has been shifted. I've, I think I've gone back to the old ways of not finding my joy in the Lord. And I'm finding it in other things, and I'm being disappointed because, surprise, surprise, I'm in a wor- sinful, broken world. And so I need to get my joy back in the Lord. Not that you're Pollyannish and you ignore the, the, the realities of life and turn a blind eye to things, but if my hope is in the Lord, I can even face those things with joy. So this is one of the great blessings of a resurrected Savior. We have an irrevocable joy. Let me show you the second thing, and I'll go faster on this one. I just want to show you the second blessing of the resur- what it means to have Jesus, the risen Savior in your life. One is that you have a joy that nobody can take, nobody can steal, nobody can rob, not even death, because he has, he's a risen Savior. But number two, you not only have irrevocable joy, you have unrestricted access to the Father. Irrevocable joy, unrestricted access. They can't take your joy away and they can't block your call. You have the Father. Look at verse 23. In that day, Jesus says, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask on the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. I love it. Verse 23, and that day you'll no longer ask me anything. The disciples got all these questions. What's going on? We don't understand. Jesus, help us understand. And he's like, look, in that day, in the day when all this happens, the resurrection, after the resurrection, you'll no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give what you whatever you ask in my name. That is total direct access to God. 
You can just talk to God and he'll give it to you. You can pray and receive. It's a huge statement. Again, verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that I will ask of the Father on your behalf. No, no, you're going to ask him yourself. The Father loves you because you've loved me. So, so there's direct access to the Father. It's not even like I'm going, like passing Jesus a note and saying, you know, if you get a chance, just give this to the Father and maybe he can work me in, you know, kind of thing. You just go. The Father loves you. It's like, you know, you got his cell number. You got the red phone that you pick up that goes directly to his desk. You walk in, past the secretary, hey, past the huge angel security guards. You know, you just walk right past him, right into his office, right through the temple. Say hi to the Levites. Say hi to the priest. Courtyard, holy place, holy of holies. You're in because the curtain has been torn. We're into his presence. We have direct access to the Father. And it's because of the resurrection. The resurrection is what lets me know I can go in to talk to God. Because through the resurrection, the thing that was keeping me from God has now been dismantled. My sin has been taken care of. Jesus died on the cross, to, as we saw in Isaiah 26, so that the wrath of God that I deserve would be absorbed by my substitute sacrifice, Jesus, rather than by me. And so now I'm forgiven in God's sight, even though I haven't led a perfect life, I haven't led a, a pure and holy life. I've been forgiven. And so now I, I can have that, that confidence. And how do I know I've been forgiven? How do I know Jesus really did pay for my sins? Because he was raised. The resurrection is the proof that the death for my sins really took because if he had died and said i'm dying for your sins jeremy and then he didn't come back hmm, i don't know i hope he did maybe it just didn't work maybe i don't know maybe he was a sinner too and he just died for his own sins you know but when he was raised it's like he did it he, he did it my sins are taken away. And, and my sin, which was between me and God, is now canceled. And I'm going in, straight in to the Father. It's direct access in the name of Jesus. That's how it works. So, so just hold on to both of those truths. Direct access in the name of Jesus. It's direct access. You don't have to go through anyone else. You don't need any other mediation anyway. Some of us were raised in church traditions that, that we were kind of taught that the way to really get word to God was through the saints, through Mary, right? Not only is that nowhere anywhere in the Bible at all, but it just sullies the resurrection. It just kind of makes it like Jesus really didn't quite get it there. You, you know, you can go, just take your little statues and throw them in the trash and go talk to your father, through Christ. But it's not just the saints and, and all that stuff that's church tradition that's not biblical. But you know, it's not even that. It's just like, oh, I can't go talk to God. I, you know, geez, I, I'm not, he wouldn't want to listen to me. I, I can't go talk to God. I got all this stuff in my past. I mean, I kind of believe Jesus forgave it, but I don't know. I can't talk to God. I'm so ineloquent. I'm not a person of words. You know, just a hundred different reasons we could put fake obstacles between us and talking to the Father in prayer. 
have direct access because of the resurrection. And remember that it's through Jesus. It's not just direct access everywhere. You know, it's not just kind of free Wi-Fi all over the world. You've got to know the code. Here's the code. J-E-S-U-S. That's the password. And not just praying and then tacking on in the name of Jesus, but it's faith in Jesus. It's confidence in Christ. It's knowing that the, the road is paved by him. And, and so when my heart is filled with faith in Christ, there is an openness toward the Father. I mean, he said it. You don't even have to. I'm not even saying Jesus says, I, I'm going to ask him for you. You're going to do it because he loves you. And why does he love you? Verse 27, because you've believed. You've loved me and you've believed. And so we're in Christ. And if Christ is in the Father's presence, we can go to the Father's presence. It's so awesome. And so it raises the question, do I pray like a man who believes that Jesus is raised and I have direct access to the Father? Do I live a life of joy like a man who has Christ? And do I, have, do I pray like one who has direct access? You know, when the, when the trials come in life, which they do, which they will this week, they're already coming, we just haven't seen them yet, and, you know, here come the trials, what do I do? You know, how much of my time do I spend panicking and worrying How much of my time then do I spend complaining or talking to friends? And how much time do I spend, I'm going to fix it because I'm a New Englander and we just deal with these things, so I'm going to deal with it myself. And, you know, I look at all of that time and all that energy spent in those ways of dealing with it, and how much time do I spend going to the Father and saying, Father, I'm asking boldly for you to do a work and then through the Father to do whatever else I have to do in this world. Where's, where's my prayer life? Am I, am I a person who prays for my friends and my family and my children and really commits myself to the work of prayer, to the work of prayer and seeing what God will do through it? You know, if I had to uh, put on my kind of pastor hat and look at our church and say, you know, where's our church weak and where's our church strong? You know, that's part of a, a, a pastor's job is to kind of be assessing his own life and looking at a, a congregation and saying, where are we weak? Where are we strong? And boy, so many great strengths in this church. And I saw them on display yesterday at the funeral. It was awesome. And, uh, and you know, there's weaknesses too. And you know, one area that I'm not sure if I would say is a weakness, but definitely is an area I'd want to probe is prayer. You know, are, are we really a praying church? Okay, that's an individual question. Am I a person who's in access, connecting to my access to the Father regularly? Are, are we praying in our growth groups? Are, are we learning how to pray together? Are we seeking out opportunities to grab hold of the Lord and pray? You know, when, when the trials come up, are, are, we, are we fasting and praying about those things? Are we fasting? Are we going without food because we're like, God, I'm just so serious about this that I'm going to lay hold of you until... Until, Lord, you move. Not that we can control God or tell God what to do, but my job is to ask. So we ask, and with fasting, we ask tightly and intensely for the Lord to work. Are we a praying church? Am I a praying man? Again, that's another little dashboard light. Boop, boop. If I'm cranky, grumpy, negative, complaining, where's my joy? And if I'm not praying... Am I really walking with the Lord or am I in my own strength? Those are just kind of two diagnostics. Because when I'm really living in light of a risen Savior, 
Those are natural outcomes for the, for the Christian life. And I'm telling you people, we need it because this life is tough. It's hard. Look at verse 29. Just wrap it up here. Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even do not need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you come from God. They still don't know what he's talking about. But they're just like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, totally, we get it. Sorry, we get it. Now we believe. Sorry, you don't have to keep going. You know, and I love it. Jesus totally calls them out, verse 31. He says, you believe at last. It's, I think that's a, the wrong translation. The right translation is actually, it's right down there in the notes. If you look down at the bottom there, that little W. This is another way to translate it. I think it's the right way to translate it. He says, do you now believe? It's kind of like, really? Oh, we believe, we get it. Really? Huh. Because let me tell you what's actually going to happen. Verse 31. A time is coming and has come, like within the next couple hours, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. It's going to be a failure here. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. So we need this because life is hard and we're, we're fearful like these disciples. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, in him, you may have peace. In the worst world, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Being a Christian does not give you a get-out-of-trouble-free card. We're in a troubled world. But take heart. We are focused on a risen Savior who has already overcome the world. So brothers and sisters, take heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's risen. And that makes all the difference for our Christian lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning because you are alive, because you have overcome the world. (sighs) Thank you, Jesus, that you've overcome the world. We're people who are slogging through the world, who are wrestling through the challenges of the world, Lord. Sometimes we feel like the world has us pinned. We thank you, Jesus, that you've overcome it, you've conquered. And so, Lord, we look to you And I pray that you would fill this church up with irrevocable joy, that we would find our life and our hope in you, Jesus. And Lord, we even thank you, we even give you thanks for the way you use disappointments in life to remind us of what it really is all about. Lord, we know that sometimes you take things away so that we might be able to see you more clearly. So God, I just pray for anyone here who's in the midst of a sense of of loss and of things being taken away, that you would just start shining in their hearts and they would lay hold of you and lay hold of that joy that only you can bring. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for making a way possible for us to go to the Father. Thank you that that we can go straight to you without any other intermediaries or any other help, Lord. We can talk to you because Christ has made the way. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir up prayer in our church, that you would make us more of a praying church, that you would make us more of a church that lays hold of the, the Ark of the Covenant goes inside of the Holy of Holies and just grabs hold of the feet of Christ and, and won't let go, Lord. I pray that we would be a people who believe in this grace that you've given us. And Lord, may we be a church that's used by you in the world, that we might tell others about you. 
Make us your ambassadors this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.